0: This is The Guardian.
1: I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. In recent months, opposition leader Peter Dutton has refined a strategy that proved instrumental
2: in defeating the referendum. It has become the core of the opposition's political strategy really is to elevate the level of polarisation in the country and use that as a battering ram against the government of the day. But will this referendum results and
1: Dutton's increasingly hardline approach win over voters? And how could this rise in anger and aggression in right-wing politics change the national conversation? Today. Peter Dutton's post referendum plan to win back Australia. It's Tuesday, the 24th of October.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: So Murph, the defeat of the referendum has many asking where do we go to from here? And late last week, the coalition started rolling out their plan for Indigenous affairs. What is it?
2: Well, we sort of heard the the key elements of the plan uh, during the referendum. We did hear these propositions advanced. Catherine Murphy is Guardian Australia's political editor. Peter Dutton started with the idea several weeks ago that he would have another referendum just on constitutional recognition. But as soon as that Proposition was out of his mouth almost as soon as that was out of his mouth. He began to walk it back and sort of ditched it formally with the resumption of Parliament. Additionally, uh, the opposition leader is basically calling for an audit of spending on Indigenous programs.
3: We know, Mr Speaker, that there are billions of dollars written from Canberra, from the states and territories, going into the Indigenous funding for programs, for rollout of different community programs and the like.
2: Uh, looking for inefficiencies and, and yeah, whether or not there's appropriate targeting and so on and so forth.
3: We do know, though, that whilst the billions of dollars come in the funnel from Canberra, in many of these communities, it is a trickle when it gets to the people who are most in need.
2: He's also championed a royal commission into instances of child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities.
3: And somehow, we don't see it as a priority in this parliament, or at least this Prime Minister doesn't see it as a priority for this parliament to call for a Royal Commission to understand what is happening, to have such a significant prevalence of child sexual abuse within Indigenous communities.
1: Improving efficiencies is a relatively uncontroversial idea when it comes to Indigenous affairs spending. But this second idea, this Royal Commission, is controversial. Mm. How was
2: it received last week? Well, stepping through it, Peter Dutton didn't find a lot of parliamentary support for this idea in the first instance. Labor was, no, we don't need this. Greens, similarly, no, we don't need this. The key kingmaker in the Senate, David Pocock, also not a fan uh, of this. And more importantly, uh, Indigenous people uh, through various advocacy groups expressed their very strong opposition uh, to this proposal. I think more than 100 of them did that in a joint statement last week, including the sort of peak group organisation that deals with children and childcare, uh, Indigenous childcare, that group pointed out that there'd already been 33 reports into child protection since the Bringing Them Home report in 1997. And uh, and people were very angry, I think, to sort of have, you know, in the week immediately after the referendum, some ideas basically about how to move forward that didn't appear to reflect much consultation with Indigenous people. This also was unpopular within his own party, right, Murph? Yes, even within Peter Dutton's own political party, there was division. Uh, the Liberal MP for Bass, so that's a seat in northern Tasmania, Bridget Archer, crossed the floor when uh, Peter Dutton attempted to suspend the standing orders in the parliament and and get parliamentary endorsement for the Royal Commission and for the audit of spending on Indigenous programs. Now, uh, Bridget Archer, a lot of listeners to the show, Laura, would know that Bridget Archer is not afraid to take a position on various things. But in relation to this particular issue, child sex abuse, she has a personal stake In this issue. Mm. She is a survivor of child sex abuse herself. Like many other Australians, I have faced the challenges of living with childhood trauma. And it is a priority for me to address in my time in this place. Thank you. She is obviously on the backbench, but she has used her time in Canberra to try and bring a focus on this issue among her colleagues. You know, she's, she's the co-chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Ending Violence Against Women, for example. Now, Bridget Archer crossed the floor to express her opposition to Peter Dutton's motion because she basically said child abuse is a serious problem. If we're going to attack a serious problem, we need to do it for all kids And also she objected in the sense that there is a lot of material out there already and, you know, much more important to act (laughs) at this point than to have yet another inquiry which imposes yet more trauma on survivors of child sexual abuse. She also had another point that she wanted to raise in the context of crossing the floor. She said, hang on a minute. The leadership of my political party throughout the Voice to Parliament referendum campaign has argued that we mustn't divide Australians on the basis of race. This has been a key line that members of the coalition have used in order to argue against the voice. And so if that's what you actually believe, then you need to be consistent about that. Archer objected that the first parliamentary motion after the referendum campaign from the leadership of her own party was actually race-specific, that this applied specifically to Indigenous people, both on spending and on the Royal Commission, and she was frustrated that there was no consistency in her own political party about that issue. Mm. Just to step back
1: for a moment, I mean, over the past year we've learned a lot about Dutton's approach to politics, particularly during the referendum. What are we seeing emerge as his playbook, especially during these divisive last few months?
2: Well, I think it tells us that the alternate Prime Minister of Australia thinks he can win the next election by fermenting division and conflict. By declaring that the voice to Parliament is a divisive proposition, you make it one. You create a debate around it. You create conflict around it. And I think that that was key to his strategy. It was cited over and over by no voters as being the number one reason, certainly in our Guardian Essential poll and also in other polls, that basically put people off. This isn't a shock. It's not like we're looking at Peter Dutton with new eyes. Oh, God, man, there you are. You used to be so kumbaya. You used to be so cuddly and now you're all angry all the time. I mean, obviously... No-one thinks that mm. about the leader of the opposition. We we know what sort of a... He's, he's a tribal, you know, sort of authoritarian, populist, centre-right politician who loves to punch on. This is not a mm. new uh, feature of his personality. But I think what we've seen during the referendum campaign is Peter Dutton growing in confidence about that sort of negative political strategy. It has become the core of the opposition's political strategy, really, is to elevate the level of polarisation in the country and use that as a battering ram against the government of the day.
1: Next, could Peter Dutton's hardline approach turn the tide for the coalition... So Murph, before the break, you outlined how Peter Dutton is escalating division, anger and aggression. Outside of the referendum campaign,
2: where else has he used this playbook? If we pull back a little bit, we saw that uh, Peter Dutton sort of uh, used climate change in the opening sort of 12 months of his leadership of the party, again, to create points of difference uh, with his political opponents. I think... More recently, we've seen deliberate efforts to create points of difference on this very sensitive subject of the war in Israel. I think we've, again, seen this intensification of making these points of difference very obvious to voters and to increase the sort of level of of contention around uh, several issues. Peter Dutton sort of began the whole debate after the war in Israel started by declaring that now was not a time for restraint.
3: Uh, when people talk about uh, Israel having to show restraint, it's completely and utterly the wrong time for that sort of language.
2: Which, again, was sort of an escalation of the rhetoric um, and a heightening of this sense of of disagreement, of rolling disagreement between himself and the, and the Labor incumbents. You've
1: also written that Dutton has a kind of post-truth Trump complex.
2: What do you mean by that? (laughs) I mean, he doesn't seem to mind whether or not various statements he makes at various points are factual, as in, is there a data point that, that supports what you've just said? At one point, uh, this was after the government introduced some reforms to the migration system that uh, basically designed to try and process people more quickly. At one point in that debate, he declared that uh, the Labor government had let 105,000 asylum seekers into the country since winning the election. Now, that sounds like quite a lot, Laura. 105,000 asylum seekers. In only sort of 12 months. So experts pointed out very quickly that 94,260 of that cohort, of the 105, had actually turned up when the coalition was in power. Uh, there was another example, it was sort of during the phase of the referendum where Alan Joyce, the besieged Qantas chief executive, seemed to be responsible for all kinds of things. Mm. At one point, Peter Dutton claimed that Anthony Albanese had failed to sort of put a narrower proposition of the voice before the Australian people because Alan Joyce had told him not to. Now, look, obviously I'm not privy to conversations between the former chief executive of Qantas and the prime minister, but that seemed a very strange thing for a chief executive to suggest to the prime minister. Now, Qantas was a long-term supporter of constitutional recognition, but that's a different proposition to Alan Joyce sitting down with the prime minister and saying, "No, you must, you know, you must advance the the most uh, ambitious version of this proposition." I mean, it just—it's sort of like what?
1: Qantas dictating Labour government policy on the referendum does seem well, to be a stretch. It,
2: it just seems a bit odd, doesn't it, Laura? Just a little bit odd, wouldn't you yes, say? for sure. Yes. I suppose to
1: look broadly at this, this approach has consequences. We've seen the defeat of the referendum. Many across the country are reeling in the past week or so and many are wondering what is the point here of
2: Dutton's approach? How does this play in his favour. What's the end goal? I think his strategy has been about depriving the Labor Party of support in areas like Western Australia and uh, potentially in Queensland and potentially in parts of New South Wales and basically creating a circumstance where after the next federal election, it's highly likely that Labor will have to form a minority government. So, like what happened with Julia Gillard in the 43rd Parliament, that that basically these circumstances can be replicated. And if folks have long memories, they'll remember that Tony Abbott pursued a very similar strategy and used climate policy as the kind of sharp edge of that strategy of pushing Labor into minority government. And I think that's what Peter Dutton would like to achieve at the next federal election, that Labor is in minority government that Labor will have to call on support from the Greens and the existing Teal parliamentarians, assuming that they all win their seats, and that, in essence, is the beginning of the end for the Labor Party in government. So I I think, from my own observation and also what people say, is that Peter Dutton is pursuing this two-term strategy. So he's not really interested about going back and winning the Liberal Party's metropolitan heartland or places that used to be their metropolitan heartland. He is basically looking to take seats from the Labor Party in various parts of the country. How achievable is that goal to push Labor into
1: minority government by winning over Labor voters who voted no at this referendum? And
2: how many seats would they need to claw back? Not that many, Laura, because the government's majority is not huge. It wouldn't It wouldn't take much to push Labor into a minority government. Now, it is arguable whether or not running this very aggressively negative strategy will actually connect with voters. I think there's been an open kind of conversation really in political circles about Uh, sort of Labor voters who voted against The Voice, for example, you know, can Peter Dutton hold that kind of constituency of traditional Labor voters who voted against The Voice? Will they still be angry in another 18 months time about having been asked about The Voice? Uh, Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Mm.
1: On the flip side, does this hardline approach risk alienating some of the more moderate MPs and also the more moderate coalition liberal national
2: voters? Well, this is the risk. I think within the Liberal Party, I think there was an awareness uh, about Dutton's strategy, the sort of pros and cons of it. Dutton's very much of the view that you can activate sort of traditional labour types to line up with you on cultural grounds, right? You can present yourself to that cohort of voters as a more desirable leader than a progressive Whitlamite Anthony Albanese, which is what Dutton is trying to portray the current Prime Minister as, right? That's that's the contrast he's seeking. He's, he's basically saying, you know, I'm your culture warrior to that group of voters. And he's saying, look at that Anthony Albanese, he only cares about inner city elites, right? That's the whole strategy. But there were also Liberals, people in the right of the Liberal Party saying to me throughout the referendum as I was chatting away to people, look, you know, we get the strategy, it may well work, but the flip side of that strategy is that there will be moderate Liberal voters in the community who never forgive us for this, who look at what we've done during the referendum and think, that's it, that is, that is where I draw the line.
1: Murph, of course, there's lots more at stake here than the fate of the Liberal Party or the coalition. It's been an incredibly tough week for First Nations people and also for people with relatives overseas in conflicts, also for the vast majority of the population who are struggling during the cost of living crisis. What do we risk by having Australia's opposition leader go down this path of of ever increasing division?
2: Well, I think polarisation is not really a strategy that benefits a democracy, given the conditions you've described, Laura. I mean, look, politics is the sort of, is the battle of ideas without resort to violence, right? Obviously, it'd be a bit strange if people in politics all agreed on everything all the time and there was no debate or no discussion about any issue. Obviously, that would be silly. And voters have got nothing to fear from the battle of ideas, so-called, right? A reasonable debate about policies and the direction of the country. But we have seen in other democracies, in the UK and in the United States, levels of polarisation in those countries that are actually detrimental to the welfare of those countries. Mm. In Australia, we have some points of difference, right? Let's just be positive for a second. We have compulsory voting in Australia, which is such an important check against extremism in, you know, in society. We also are not as unequal as those two societies that I just mentioned. There is more inequality in both of those democracies and inequality is an accelerant for polarisation and social alienation. So things are different here. But at the same time, I think pursuing polarisation as a strategy to basically rankle and rile voters, to make them angry about sort of the logjam in democracy and about priorities, all of that feeds back into trust in institutions, in government, and trust in institutions, in government is sort of fundamental to being able to achieve anything. So I think it is incumbent on people in politics to look for the the ties that bind a country together, look for the things we have in common and to invest in social cohesion and, dare we say, lead rather than be opportunistic because I think there is a moment here that is quite difficult in our democracy. We're at quite a difficult juncture. We are being tested in the Australian democracy and people who play short-term politics, partisan politics in that environment, really are not thinking sufficiently about the long-term well-being of the country.
1: That was Catherine Murphy, political editor at Guardian Australia. You can read her column at theguardian.com titled, No Matter How Serious the Issue, Nuance Becomes a Thought Crime for the Coalition's Court Jesters. We've also linked to that on the Full Story page. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story if you haven't already. You could also leave a review. This episode was produced by Karishma Uthria and Daniel Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. Theme music by Joe Koning. The executive producer is Hannah Parks. I'm Laura mofi Thanks for listening.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?